The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. As we remain standing, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you that you reign on high and that you sent us the Spirit. Holy Spirit, we praise you for your presence with us, reign in us, and fill us with the love that you share with Father and Son. Amen. Please be seated. Before Jesus left his disciples for good, He taught them one last time from Scripture, and he gave them some final instructions. Thus it is written, Jesus said, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. After he'd said this, Jesus rose up into the heavens and he was gone for good. So the disciples waited, perhaps patiently, probably fretfully. Jesus had promised to to send the spirit to dwell with them, but they didn't really know what that meant. All they knew was that they had a massive job ahead of them. It was clear that Jesus intended them to for them to begin a missionary work that would take them far from home and way out of their comfort zone. But for now, they'd been told to wait. And 10 days into their wait came the Feast of Pentecost. Now, Pentecost was one of the three major feasts each year during which Jerusalem would fill with pilgrims from all over the world. The atmosphere was festive, but the disciples were on edge. 120 of them were packed into a home, tucked in among the busy streets of Jerusalem, praying and waiting. Now, they didn't know what they were waiting for exactly, but when the Spirit turned up that morning, there was no denying that the Spirit had come. First, there was a roaring wind, followed by floating tongues of fire and a cacophony of foreign languages. There was so much noise in the house that a crowd actually began to gather on the street outside, wondering what in the world was going on in there. 
propelled by the Spirit, the disciples poured out of the house onto the street and began explaining the good news about Jesus Christ in languages that they had never spoken before. The crowd was amazed and perplexed, as Luke tells us, and some were swift to mock the disciples as morning drunks because they couldn't understand what was going on. But it was clear that something incredible was unfolding before their eyes. And that was when Peter stood up and he proclaimed the dawn of a new age. Quoting from the prophet Joel, he said to the crowd, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The last days are here, Peter claimed, meaning that the final chapter in the story of salvation is being written. And in these days, God has sent his spirit, not just to speak through a few bearded prophets to the people of Israel like in the days of old, but to speak through men and women, young and old, to all people everywhere, proclaiming the mystery of salvation. Now, it is hard to overemphasize the significance of this day. Everything really does change when God sends his spirit to dwell with his people. Everything changes, but, but what exactly is the Spirit doing? And what should we expect the Spirit to do within and among us nearly 2,000 years later? Well, this morning I want to take some time to reflect on two aspects of the Spirit's work that we see in this passage. And having done that, we'll take a step back at the very end to address a fundamental question about the Spirit. So you may want to turn to Acts 2 with me so that you can follow along. It's on page 909 in the Red Bibles, page 909. And the first thing that I want you to notice in this story is that the Holy Spirit empowers God's people to share the gospel. The Holy Spirit empowers God's people to share the gospel because the Spirit is a spirit of mission. So the day began with the disciples gathered behind closed doors. They were waiting as they had been told, but there was more to the situation. You see, Jerusalem was an occupied city. The Romans had conquered the Jews, and things were often tense. Religious festivals were a particularly tense time in Jerusalem. During the festivals, uh, Jerusalem filled with Jews from around the empire, which put the Romans especially on guard against insurrection. The Roman governor would actually beef up security during every festival by calling in troops from the coast and housing them in a fortress right next to the temple. Jesus' disciples would have been under particularly close watch by both the Jewish and the Roman authorities at that time. Those authorities, they had already killed the disciples' leader. But they knew that if this little group were planning a rebellion, now was the likely time. So you can be certain that there were Roman soldiers milling about on the street outside that house where the disciples were gathered. 
along with spies from the high priest. The insurrection the Romans feared, however, it was nothing at all like the actual revolution that took place. Those disciples burst out onto the street, not bearing arms, but bearing witness to the God of love who died in order to save them all. I think it's helpful for us to have in mind this contrast between the rebellion that was feared and the actual revolution that took place because it reminds us how God works. God unseats rulers and he conquers the world not through armed aggression or political dominance, but through the lips of his people proclaiming the good news of redemption through Jesus Christ. The work of the Holy Spirit is to empower God's people for this mission and to send them into the world. Now we get a hint of the global scope of this work in verses 9 to 11 as Luke carefully lists the people and the nations present that day. I just have to, I have to do, give a shout out to Nancy Pennington who read from Acts. Like, did you notice how quick and fluid and perfect she was in saying all of those names? It was amazing. So Luke begins with the Parthians and the Medes. And they come from what is now Iran and Afghanistan, far to the east. Luke then continues by mentioning the regions of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia. And by doing so, he moves across the map from the far east towards Jerusalem and to points north of Jerusalem. Luke then names Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, arcing across to the northwest before moving south and naming Egypt and Libya. Finally, he moves out to the far west and to the capital of the empire in Rome. Luke wants us to know that in Jerusalem that day, there were people from as far away as Afghanistan in one direction and Italy in the other. The entire empire was represented on the streets of Jerusalem symbolizing the fact that the gospel was indeed being sent out to the far ends of the earth. Now, one of the things I want you to notice about Pentecost morning is the direction of movement. Okay, everything begins behind closed doors. But as soon as the spirit arrives, the action moves outside and it keeps moving from there all the way to the end of the earth. Now, when we think about sharing the gospel with our friends and with our neighbors, with our family members, we typically begin by trying to figure out how to get them to come to church. So the thought is, if I can just get them to church, they'll hear the gospel there. But notice the movement in that plan is from outdoors in. We're trying to get people inside a rather imposing set of doors at a particular time on a particular day. Now, don't get me wrong. It is good to bring friends and neighbors to church. I hope you will continue doing so. But that is not sufficient for sharing the gospel. The Spirit propels Jesus' disciples out of the house and into the lives of those around them. He wants us to do the same. He's empowered us to share the gospel over coffee, at the park, on the phone, where our friends live and work and play. If we really believe 
that Jesus is the answer to all of life's most important questions about meaning, purpose, our identity, and the future, then why in the world would we wait until we could convince our friends to come to church to tell them about him? Take the gospel out and the Holy Spirit will bring the people in. Now most of us feel intimidated when it comes to the idea of sharing the gospel. We feel like uh, we have to have a bunch of Bible verses memorized or be able to draw the perfect dramatic illustration on a napkin. We feel uncertain, we feel intimidated, and so we hold back. But what if I told you that all you are meant to be doing is introducing one friend to another? That's what sharing the gospel is, introducing one friend to another. You don't have to have a speech rehearsed. You don't have to end every conversation with an invitation to pray the sinner's prayer. You don't have to push or to press. All you have to do is be honest about who your friend Jesus is and how you relate to him. Now for most people, this happens in bits and pieces over time with many conversations and more listening than talking. It took me a long time to understand this. I once completely blew it when I was a chaplain in Cambridge. I was meeting with a distraught undergrad who had been shunned by her friends. She needed a hug, a listening ear, a listening ear, and a simple prayer. But instead, I told her the story of creation and took her all the way to Jesus. It it was awful. And after we finished talking, she couldn't wait to get back to her mean friends. (laughs) The first thing that the Spirit does is to empower God's people to share the gospel. The second thing the Spirit does is the Spirit breaks down barriers. The Spirit breaks down barriers. So often what holds us back in sharing the gospel are the barriers that we think stand in the way. What if I say it wrong? What if they're not ready to hear it? What if I offend them? We can work up the courage to talk to a friend only to psych ourselves out in the face of so many barriers. Breaking through those barriers is the Spirit's job. I want you to notice all of the different barriers the Spirit breaks through on Pentecost morning. The first, it's often overlooked, but I think it's incredibly important. And it's the reticence and fear of the disciples. Now Luke doesn't mention this, so we can only infer it. But I believe that it's safe to assume these folks were pretty rattled by Jesus' brutal murder. They were almost certainly fearful of what might happen should they speak up about him. Remember, they're being watched as they waited. But the Spirit breaks through their fear and hesitation. They barreled out of the front door of that house, noisily proclaiming the mighty works of God through Jesus. Now, you may be fearful or reticent when it comes to speaking about Jesus. You may simply be shy or introverted. But if you are a disciple of Jesus, the Spirit of God dwells within you and can break through those barriers within you as well. Second, and most obviously, there's the language barrier. The people on the streets, they're from all over the known world. The disciples in the house are almost all from Galilee, which was the West Virginia of the Jewish world. It's likely that they only spoke Aramaic, 
and they spoke it with a heavy accent. But the spirit whose work is to get the word out makes that word intelligible by breaking through the language barrier. Now I want you to notice what doesn't happen here. The spirit doesn't enable the crowd to miraculously understand the disciples when they speak. He enables the, dis the disciples to speak miraculously in the many languages of the crowd. So the, the miracle takes place within the disciples because it's they who've been given the Spirit. And the miracle shows an incredible sensitivity on the part of the Spirit because it allows these foreigners to hear the message of the gospel in their mother tongue. So if you've ever lived overseas in a context where English isn't spoken, then you know how wonderful it can be to hear someone on the street speaking the language of home. Or if you moved here from another country, then you know how special it is when you hear the language of your heart in an accent from home. We worry about communication barriers, but the Spirit is one step ahead. Not only does the Spirit break through those barriers, He does so with incredible sensitivity to those with whom we speak. He will give you the right words if you trust Him enough to open your mouth. There's another barrier connected to language, and that's the barrier of race and ethnicity. Most of the people on the street that morning were Jews. They shared a common ethnicity, but they came from far off places where some families and clans had been resident for more than five centuries. They had intermarried with local people, which meant their skin tones ranged from olive to black. These Jews from out of town, they looked different. They acted differently. But the Holy Spirit inhabiting God's people was seeking them out and breaking down the barriers of difference. He did this then and he can still do this now. We are in such a broken and painful place in our society when it comes to race relations. We're awkward with each other. We don't know what to say. We make all kinds of wrong-headed assumptions about each other. We, stay, we say stupid things without even know, knowing that we're saying stupid things. It seems like the barriers are higher than ever, but the Spirit can break through them if we let Him take the lead. Internal barriers broken down. Language and communication barriers broken down. Racial and ethnic barriers broken down. Finally, there are status barriers that are broken down. So when Peter addresses the crowd on the streets, he quotes from the Old Testament prophet Joel. Joel had prophesied about the age of the Spirit and foreseen that young and old, men and women, servant and free, would all possess the Spirit and be used by the Spirit to communicate the mighty works of God. When Peter used Joel's words as the basis of his sermon that morning, he was claiming that that time had come. In Joel's day, the Spirit had spoken selectively. Prophets were mostly men, and prior to John the Baptist, the Jews had been without a known prophet for 400 years. Now, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit had come upon men and women, young and old, slave and free, inhabiting all who called on Jesus as Lord. The Spirit was now speaking through slave boys, old women, manual laborers, upper class, lower class, educated, uneducated, male and female. 
This means that the Spirit can speak through you. The idea of status, it can play on our sense of inadequacy. If you only have a high school degree, you feel inadequate talking to someone with an MBA. If you're in high school, you feel inadequate talking to a college student. If you're retired, you feel inadequate talking to a tattooed 25-year-old. When the Holy Spirit breaks down barriers related to status, he overcomes our inadequacies, both real and perceived. So the Holy Spirit empowers us to share the gospel and then breaks down every barrier that stands in the way to the gospel being received. Sometimes the Spirit does this with an obvious miracle, like on Pentecost morning. Other times the Spirit does this quietly by changing our hearts. What you need to know is that this Spirit, this same Holy Spirit who indwelled the first believers, that Spirit took up residence in you when you called on Jesus in faith. The Spirit has empowered you to share the gospel. And he's breaking down every barrier that stands in your way. That's what we see in this incredible story of Pentecost Day. But who or what exactly is the Holy Spirit? That's the fundamental question I said I wanted to return to here at the end. And I need to be brief. And here's, here's what I want you to know. The Holy Spirit is a person, not a superpower. The Holy Spirit is a person, not a superpower. So the worst thing that happened to the modern Christian understanding of the Holy Spirit was the release of Star Wars in 1977. Because of Star Wars, our instinct is to think of the Spirit as an impersonal force that we must tune into or be filled with in order to unleash special powers within us. But Scripture and the early church make clear that the Spirit is a person. Part of the God we know is Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, I know this is hard to understand. And you have to believe me because I have wrote my PhD on the Holy Spirit and I still struggle with my limited imagination to grasp the fact that the Spirit is a person. The Spirit has no body, no limitations. The Spirit is present in me and in you and in this place and in the presence of God the Father. We try in vain to understand what we cannot fully grasp, but this shouldn't hold us back from grasping all we can. And here's the most important part. If the Spirit is the person of God, present with us, then what the Spirit grants to us isn't just power, it's intimacy. The Spirit invites us into the love of God himself. So when the 120 were filled with the Spirit on Pentecost, they were infused not with spiritual Red Bull, they were inhabited by the love of God. It is the love of God that empowered them for mission, that propelled them out of the house, that broke down barriers, and led to the conversion of the nations. We look to the Spirit for power, for miracles, 
And the Spirit will provide these things according to his wisdom. But what the Spirit gives constantly and in great abundance to every one of us is God's love. And my prayer for us today is that through the Holy Spirit, we would experience a deeper intimacy with God and so be filled with his love, the kind of love that breaks down barriers, that seeks people out, and that shares the gospel with joy and with grace. Let's pray. Lord God, you have inhabited us by your spirit. We know this to be true, though we do not fully understand it. We know that by the Holy Spirit, you have brought your love to each one of us in a deep, powerful, personal way. Would you draw us into greater intimacy? That we might know your love, that we might abound in your love. And that by the power of your love at work within us, we might be propelled out of the house to share the gospel and to see every barrier broken down by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.